know a lot of parents are terrified of an early bedtime because they're like, if I put my child down, I know it's not logical. It's biological. You're not taking anything away from their morning sleep. All we were doing is offering an extra sleep cycle at the beginning of the night where the most restorative sleep happens. Welcome to the Raise Your Hand Motherhood Podcast, a place where you just might find or hear a tiny piece of your motherhood reality. I'm your host, Raylan Minka, an educator, writer, and emotionally frazzled toddler mom. If you've ever felt lonely in your motherhood journey or asked yourself, am I the only one experiencing this? Then you, my friend, are in the right place. Each episode focuses on a different but common motherhood struggle, where we discuss the ups, the downs, and the WTFs with moms from all around the world. So whether you're stroller pushing and podcasting yourself around the neighborhood, waiting at the doctor's office for your next fertility treatment, or listening with a well-deserved glass of wine at the end of another full day of motherhood, welcome. I hope you can relate to some of what you hear in today's episode, and get ready to raise your hand if you do. Hey, mamas, and welcome to the pod. I'm your host, Raylan Minka, and in today's episode, we're talking about a big one, sleep. I'm joined by Kim Davis, founder of Babes and Beyond. She's a certified pediatric sleep consultant with a psychology degree in child development and a whole host of certifications and experience working in the field of sleep. We're going to cover a lot in today's episode, including some sleep-related questions that I've collected directly from the Raise Your Hand Motherhood community. Did you submit a question? because I know I did. Hello, my name is Ray, and my toddler is currently in a new and not-so-fun sleep regression. More on that to come. Okay, I'll be right back with more, Mamas, so don't go anywhere. I am tired, Mamas. We're currently right in the thick of a major sleep regression with our two-year-old, and we were not expecting it or prepared for it. I used to have apps on my phone that would tell me when the next regression was coming, but I guess I kind of stopped using them at some point after that first year, and boy, it's like somebody accidentally hit Control-Alt-Delete on everything our son used to know about sleep, and we're starting over from scratch. Okay, even I admit that maybe sounded a bit dramatic, but I feel like I'm right back there, you know, in those first few months with a newborn. I've been experiencing night fear again every evening before bed, which is a term a mom friend of mine used once to describe the feeling of dread a new mom feels as the night approaches. Not knowing if the baby will sleep, how many hours you might be rocking or bouncing or nursing or pacing or sleeping yourself. It gave me such anxiety and my husband never really got it. I tried explaining the night fear to him a few times, but it just didn't seem to compute for him. I know now that as the default parent and as the primary source of nourishment, because I was breastfeeding exclusively at the time, the vast majority of the nighttime wakings fell on me. So it makes sense that he never really got it, because he wasn't living the same nightly experience that I was as a new parent. And don't get me wrong, my husband helped out as much as he could during that time, and we were both new parents trying to figure out how to be new parents. You know, I remember watching a series on Netflix a few years back. It was called Babies. And in the very first episode, this stuck with me apparently, they talk about the fact that it's usually the mother who hears a crying baby in the night. And it's the mother who is not able to sleep either because of it or in anticipation of it, even as their partner is able to sleep deeply and soundly right beside them. 
I can personally attest to this, and I'm pretty sure most mothers listening can too. I could not believe it when my husband slept through the first real crying fit that our baby had after coming home from the hospital. Ugh. I remember just standing there with this new little person in my arms and absolutely no idea how to get him back to sleep and thinking, no, 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 no. I cannot do this on my own, so you need to wake the F up. (laughs) Anyway, back to the Netflix series. I went back and rewatched the episode, and it turns out that the surge of the hormone oxytocin at birth actually activates a very primitive structure in the brain called the amygdala, which makes us, the mama, hypervigilant about our baby. And apparently, once the amygdala is activated, it stays that way forever. When they did studies to compare the brain scans of sets of parents, it found that the dad's amygdalas were only about one quarter the size of the mom's. Now, interestingly, the study also looked at 48 gay couples, so men in committed relationships who became parents via surrogacy and were the primary caregivers from day one of their child's life. And the results of the study showed that amygdala activation in those cases was the same as it is in mothers. Hmm. I just thought that was interesting. I really wanted to share that. So yeah, back to the toddler sleep regression we are currently experiencing in our household, and I can confirm that my amygdala, it's firing, baby. Okay, so I can't wait to dig into this topic with my guest today and to share more motherhood stories and experiences with you from Women in the Raise Your Hand motherhood community. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back with Kim Davis, the show's first certified pediatric sleep consultant. Hi, Kim, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be an absolute joy. I love talking about sleep, so I'm sure you're going to have to cut me off at the time limit. I'm like a sponge today, soaking up as much as I can as well. So, okay, so in a minute, um, we're going to talk a little bit about your uh, professional background and how you got into sleep consulting, as well as what your own personal motherhood experience with sleep has been like. And then later in the interview, which I'm really excited about, Uh, We're going to listen to some specific questions from members of the Raise Your Hand Motherhood community, and you are going to give your individual thoughts and advice to those tired mamas. Awesome. (laughs) So I will admit I'm also very exhausted myself. My own toddler has been going through his latest sleep regression, and uh, yeah, last night we were up at all hours. So apologies in advance if I have any lapses in in consciousness. (laughs) No Um, worries. But... (laughs) I'm very interested about the subject. So, um, Kim, could you give the moms listening in a bit of a snapshot of who you are and what your motherhood story has looked like so far? Yes, I I love sharing this story. So forgive me if some tears happen to uh, fall while I'm explaining my my motherhood journey and uh, how I actually became a sleep consultant. So I'm a mom of two and I'm in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, uh, born and raised here. We did travel a little bit with my husband with his job as well. So I can relate with your story a little bit. And, you know, traveling's hard, but yeah. uh, here, here we are back in back in Ottawa. So uh, I've been a certified pediatric sleep consultant with the Family Sleep Institute for about 10 years now, going on my 10th year. Hard to believe that it's been 10 years already with everything that's happened yeah. in our lives, but uh, it's been an absolute amazing journey. 
Uh, my background is actually in psychology. So I have a degree in childhood development and psychology. So it, it ties in beautifully with what I'm doing right now. It is absolutely the most rewarding thing I have done in my entire life, um, other than raising my children, <laughs> of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it uh, I get to almost help other families raise their little ones too. So it, it truly is the most rewarding thing that I've done in the last 10 years. Uh, but my why and kind of my journey on this on this career path in my motherhood was actually my son. So my son did not sleep through the night or have any kind of decent nap for two and a half years. And I'm not kidding when I say two and a half years. And you can imagine the sleep deprivation that, uh, that built up in my family for two and a half years. And I'll be honest with you, it was a very deep dark place that I was in. And, and honestly, I didn't know if I was going to come out on the other side. And I can feel the tears coming already. Even 10 years later, yeah. he's now um, 11 and a half. He's almost 12. And when I share my story of how I became a sleep consultant, it really brings me back to the time when I was was suffering and my husband was working struggling. late. And we were, oh, struggling. Struggling, I don't even think is the word that I would use. It was it was a very dark place, I'll be honest. And yeah. when I look back and, and I see the struggle and everything that I went through and not knowing what to do and so much information out there, conflicting information. If I do this, I'm going to ruin my child. If I do this, I won't. And, and so I became so overwhelmed that I didn't do anything because I didn't know what to do. There was so much conflicting information, yeah. but it brought me on a path where I remember that day saying to myself, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. I'm really done because I was blaming it on the travel. I was blaming it on a new crib. I was blaming it on, you know, everything that was going on in my life, but I didn't realize the underlying cause. And that's what I really focus on with parents is the cause of those night wakings, the cause of, of, of what's going on and what's going on within the family and the family dynamics. Because, yes, your little one's not sleeping, but there's so many other things that it affects, right? It reflects you. It, it just impacts your relationship with everyone around you and your health. My health suffered drastically um, when I was going through this. So it was it was something that it was really a wake up call for me and a very scary one that I said, I can't do this anymore. So I reached out um, to the Family Sleep Institute and it was the best decision that I ever made because now I truly understand what families are going through and I have the empathy and I know exactly those feelings that moms or dads are experiencing. And it's, and a lot of the times it's not good feelings that we're experiencing. So um, I made it my passion and my mission to help as many families as I can not go through what I went through for two and a half years. My gosh, Kim, I can feel, I can see because we're looking at each other. The listener can't see you, but I can see the passion that you have. And and that's one of the reasons that I wanted to speak so much with you is to have this empathy, as you say, from your own personal experience, married with your background in, in childhood psychology and now the experience that you have as a certified mm. pediatric sleep consultant, who better to speak with about the topics and the struggles that we're going to we're going to discuss in this interview. So thank you again. Like that's my absolute pleasure. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's a mom who is listening who is like, just going, I'm right there with you, mama. Like, <laughs> tell me what yeah. you know. Okay, so you work with the Family Sleep Institute. Am I saying that correctly? Well, Family that's where I that's where I received my certification. So I do have my own business. So Babes okay. and Beyond Pediatric Sleep is is my business, but my training came from the Family Sleep Institute. Okay, so in what capacity do you mostly work with families? 
Right now, it, it's well, in the last few years, it's drastically changed because of COVID. Okay. So before COVID hit, you know, I was doing one on ones, kind of going into the family's home and chatting with them. But because COVID and still there's a lot of restrictions, families aren't comfortable with me coming into their homes. Most of the communication takes place on a Zoom call. So and it works fabulous because I can work with people in different time zones. I, you know, so it's great. So that's kind Mm -hmm. of where we're at now. Um, So I do most of it like kind of over the phone, emails and and Zoom calls. So it works great. And what age range do you work within for children? So I actually um, help families from newborn right up to the age of 12. Around, yeah, around 12 is probably the oldest. Well, actually, no. There's been a 14 year old as well in the past, but usually that's kind of cut off because when there's um, issues with teens and their sleep, it's kind of a different thing that we look at. So it's more behavioral and sleep hygiene that's going on. So very, very different Mm -hmm. from a newborn consultation from a teen sleep consultation or preteen consultation. But um, yes, I I have um, packages in regards and programs from newborn all the way up to about 12 years old. Okay. And what are the most common issues that clients and families are coming to you with? Ooh, uh, that's a long list <laughs> of things <laughs> because, uh, because with every different age group, there's different challenges um, that they come to me. And, you know, if I, if I think about it, what's the most common between the, let's say, newborn and say toddler is naps. That's the biggest mm-hmm. thing. Naps are short or naps are not happening at all. Um, many, many night wakings um, that are happening. Uh, and like I said at the beginning, uh, when we started talking, the main focus for me is the cause of those things. So there could be sleep associations, there yeah. could be, um, you know, developmental things going on, so many things that are going on that we really have to look back and say, okay, what is the cause of that? Because if we use uh, a sleep approach, let's say, you know, doing time checks or, you know, going in and staying with the baby until they fall asleep, every approach will work if you're consistent. But if we just apply an approach and not look at the cause of what's going on, you're just going to be spinning your wheels and you're not going to get anywhere because you haven't addressed the cause. You're treating the symptom, but you're not addressing the cause. Right. So there's a lot of things that go on trying to find out, um, you know, the family dynamics. If one parent is is on board with sleep training and the other one is not. Ooh, we have, <laughs> we definitely right. have a challenge going on, right? Because you need yeah. that consistency. You need both parents to be, you know, on board with everything that's going on. Not necessarily both of them helping because a lot of the time, let's say if the dad is working and mom feels that, you know, she wants to do this because she wants to let her husband sleep or vice versa. That's okay. You can certainly do it on your own. I've had many, many families where it's just one parent, but it's good to have, the understanding that this is a team effort and we really want to see those goals because if there's one parent that's not on board, there's a lot of conflicting things going on. It makes makes it very challenging to do that. So That makes me think about mom guilt. And I just have this question mm. that's just popped into my head because of your mm-hmm. background in psychology as well. Um, do mm. you ever find that when you're working with families – especially maybe in situations where only one partner is on board with sleep training or, or what, whatever the situation is, that you're working specifically with the family on their child's needs and the reasons that they're struggling with sleep, but that you also are working 
with the parent or the mom, most likely on mom guilt, you know, like helping to kind of coach them through feelings of guilt that they might be having because, I mean, a number of reasons pop into my head. It might be because they want to do sleep training and a partner doesn't, or it might be um, I've spoken to moms who have a lot of guilt around sleep because even though their child is a quote unquote good sleeper or has been a good sleeper, like you you mentioned Mm -hmm. the first two and a half years were awful for sleep, Mm -hmm. you know, but that... But that that mom, even that mom that has that child who has gone through phases of good sleep is still struggling so much, you know, and maybe feels guilty like, oh, I can't talk about this with anybody because, yes. you know, I'm, why am I complaining? I've had it good up until this point. Yes, absolutely. And you'll find that, you know, I've been part of like some mom and baby exercise groups and I've done some speaking with some other groups and some play groups. And what is the biggest topic that everybody talks about? Sleep right? But every baby is different. And, you know, perfect example is my own family that uh, my daughter, amazing sleeper, I can, I can set my watch by that little girl. And then, you know, I did some loose sleep training with her. But she was amazing. It just it just happened. And so I had no idea what sleep deprivation was. I had no clue. I could not relate to those moms that were struggling because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. She just sleeps like I wasn't doing anything really special to do that. Then my son came along and I was hit like a brick. I I seriously like sleep deprivation became my world and I became obsessed with sleep. And obsessed, I think not in a good way, (laughs) because I didn't know what I was doing. And like I said before, you know, having all that conflicting information and, you know, having unsolicited advice being thrown at me all the time, well, do this and your baby will sleep. Well, don't do that because you're going to ruin your baby. Yeah, exactly. I was absolutely terrified, terrified. And so I can understand of that mom guilt because I, I was like, okay, my son needs sleep, but I'm not doing anything. So I must be a horrible mother. Absolutely not. I was just confused. I didn't know what to do. And back then, you know, 10, 11 years ago, there was not really any sleep coaches. There was a couple that come to mind, um, but there wasn't like it is today where you could simply reach out and have a, a conversation with somebody and say, Hey, this is what's going on. Do you have any advice for me? You know, what am I doing wrong? And most of the time, you know, I would say 99.9% of the time, you're not doing anything wrong. It's just your child is changing, particularly when you had mm-hmm. a good sleeper and now they're, they're, they're having some challenges. It's not that you're doing anything wrong. It's just your baby has changed. How do you now navigate through that change? And that's what I love helping families with is to navigate through those changes because we don't know because you're like, did I do wrong? Did I put the wrong sleeper on? Did I have the temperature not right? Did I not feed him enough? Did I not, you know, rock him enough to go to sleep? So we constantly try and go over these things. Well, what did I do yesterday? That's different than what I did today. And it's usually nothing. It's Mm -hmm. just your baby is changing, going through some developmental leap, or, you know, maybe they ate something, maybe it's a digestive issue, something has changed. So let's look at that change. And now how do we navigate through those changes? So I completely understand about the mom guilt because I went through it. Mm. (laughs) I definitely went through it. But getting back to your question in regards to how do I help families do that? We definitely have a conversation of like what their experiences were, because sometimes even their own childhood experiences can start to show in regards to how Mm. and like their consistency, what approach they're going to take. So they may want the fastest. And I say that in the air, people can't see me, but the (laughs) fastest, yes, the fastest approach, but that that might not be the right approach for you. 
because mm-hmm. you want to make sure that your approach is the same at noon as it is in three o'clock in the morning, because our patients level at three o'clock in the morning, drastically different. So yes, we need to be mindful of mom's feelings. We need to be mindful of dad's feelings when this is happening, because, you know, if one person is not on board, sometimes the other partner can kind of swoop in and in the sleep consulting world, we use the word kind of sabotage, right? Uh, <laughs> like okay. One parent has gone in and swooped up and kind of did the rescue, right? When mom has worked or dad has worked so hard for the last five or six days of getting to this point. Oh. But the other partner is just like, I can't do it anymore. I can't, I can't handle say, can't whether handle crying or something. Right. So that's where yeah. we have to have that, you know, very frank conversation. I will support you 100%. It doesn't matter what approach you will take. Every approach will work. If you're consistent, it will take, you know, some timing, mm-hmm. there might be some timing difference, but let's have that conversation because I don't want parents to completely be out of their comfort zone where they don't feel good about the process. And you need to feel good about the process because it's not a race. I share that with every family that I work with. It's not, you want to take that time to build that great sleep foundation. And it doesn't matter which approach you take. You just want to have that approach that's specifically for your family because every baby is different. Every family is different. So you need to really focus on, okay, what do I need to do for my family? Not worry about your neighbor, not worry about your best friend, Mm -hmm. not worry about what your mom did. (laughs) What is best for your family? And that's what we focus on to help deal with all that mom feeling or or even dad's feelings. I've had many dads share with me Mm -hmm. that they just can't handle this and help me through this. Right. So it's a, it's a lot of conversations back and forth um, when we work together. So I was going to say, it sounds like before you get to a point where it's like, okay, how are we going to, um, are we going to reach out to someone to help us navigate this? Like communication between you and your partner or whoever you are parenting this child with communication like that needs to be super you need to be on the same page before you make any decisions yes absolutely yes hey mamas sorry to interrupt your episode but i wanted to say hi my name is kylie kelly and i'm the host of the this mama means business podcast i'm obsessed with all things business and motherhood and navigating the magical and messy seasons of both When you're finished listening to this incredible episode of the Raise Your Hand Motherhood podcast, I would be honored if you would join me for an episode over at This Mama Means Business. Think of it as a coffee date or a happy hour with your girlfriends where we talk real life, money, challenges, growth, frustrations, marketing. It's all welcome here. So when you're done here, simply search for This Mama Means Business and come and join us. We would love to have you. All right, let's jump on back into the episode. So let's help some moms then. (laughs) All right. Let's help some moms. (laughs) So this is the first time that I've actually gotten questions directly from the community to ask a guest. So I'm really excited to share and discuss them with you. I know and you know how desperate moms can get when their babies or toddlers or kids either don't sleep or have sudden changes in their Mm -hmm. sleep behaviors or when a family just gets stuck in a really long pattern or routine that is not sustainable for anyone, um, whether that's the child or the parents. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to share four or five specific questions that I received and then you can share your tangible tips and takeaways or advice for those moms. Awesome. So this first question is coming from a very tired mom in the UK. So I'll let her introduce herself. Hi, my name is Gemma and I have a 14 month old. Um, Her name is Isla and we have always struggled with sleep, but more recently 
she has been waking up for two to four hours every single night. So I guess my question would be, why is this happening? And what can I do to help her go back to sleep? At the moment, me feeding her seems to wake her up more as well. Thank you. All right. Let's help her out. So a couple of things come to mind in regards to 14 months old. Um, a, a lot of the time we see a little bit of a, a sleep disturbance. And I'll be honest with you, I don't necessarily like using the term regression uh, because mm. it, it really it really isn't regressing. It's just a change. And a lot of the time it's actually a right. progression, right? So they're learning new yeah. skills. And this is an amazing thing for for parents to watch. So if we kind of change that mindset that it's not a regression, it's just a change in what's happening. I think a lot of the times the anxiety from parents seems to kind of slip away a little bit because we just want to focus on, okay, they're changed. Let's navigate through that change. How do we do that? So in regards to the 14 month, we we do see a lot of families kind of panic that their great little sleeper is now changing. But, you know, we had to look at it, was there something developmentally that was going on? A lot of the times we'll see walking happening happening at this time. Is was there a language burst that was happening at this time? And if I if I heard the question properly, the the night wakings, they're awake between two and four hours. And mm-hmm. I would kind of ask them what's going on at that time. If they're just babbling, if they're crying. Um, that's a long period of time to be awake. So my sense that there's something else going on there, not necessarily, it's just they can't go back to sleep. Um, I'd be looking at if um, their naps during the day. So if their naps are not restorative during the day, so just quick aside, what moms and, and dads and caregivers should be looking for naps to be classified as restorative three things. One that it lasts at least an hour two, that there is no wakings in between, and three, that they wake happy. If you can check all three boxes off, you can consider that nap restorative. If it's not restorative, so this means something happened, it's shorter, they're waking after one sleep cycle, which is typically 45 minutes, you need to look at the cause of that. So one big thing is being overtired going into naps. That's the biggest thing for short naps is that they're overtired. So they kind of crash for naps, which would be falling asleep within a couple of minutes. We don't usually want to see that because we can pretty much guarantee that it's going to be short because they crashed. It's not, we want to see them kind of be in their sleep space and they fall asleep on their own and they kind of drift off, not put their head down and they're asleep. So that would be classified as crash. So that's, that's a big thing for naps. And if the naps are not restorative during the day, you're going to start to see a big sleep debt build up because they're not receiving that restorative sleep during the day. So if they're sleeping well during the day, usually you can count on sleep at night being half decent, like a pretty good night. If they're not sleeping well during the day, you can pretty much count on a lot of night wakings, early morning risings because they're overtired going to bed. Those are the big, that's, I would say if there's not an underlying health issue 95% of the causes of night wakings, early morning risings, uh, short naps is being overtired. So how do we break that cycle, right? So there's, there's biological sleep waves that happen and, and not to get too technical about it, but I personally don't go off wake times. And I know this is going to blow up your, your, your podcast. What? She didn't use (laughs) wake times. 
No, I don't. <laughs> uh, because there's biological sleep waves that happen during the day. And this is why I focus on those sleep waves to get the most restorative sleep. So wake times do have a time and a place. I don't go off wake times past usually four and a half, maybe five months, depending on the baby, because okay. their circadian rhythms, which is our internal body clocks, they now start to focus on the light and the darkness after a certain age. And that usually happens around 16 weeks. So like four, four months, four and a half months, somewhere there. So in order to get that restorative sleep, which is key, <laughs> you're probably going to stick, be sick of me saying this restorative during this, during this podcast, but it's key because if we don't have restorative sleep, it's almost like the nap didn't happen. So I'll give you an example. Like if you took a nap during the day, 2.30, you're like, oh, I'm exhausted. I'll just sleep for a couple of, you know, maybe an hour or something, not even. And you wake up, you don't feel that great, right? You feel, you, you've mm -hmm. slept, but you didn't actually get that restorative sleep to make you feel better. So this is what's happening with the little ones. If they don't get that restorative sleep, they slept, right? And maybe it could be a couple of hours, but is it falling within that biological sleep wave that will give you that restorative sleep? And what happens during that biological sleep wave is it, our bodies release melatonin, which is our sleepy hormone. And this is what we need to fall asleep and to stay asleep. So that's why we want to sleep on those waves because we want to ride the waves. We don't want to go against the waves. So that's why it's super important to do that. So to go back to this mom, I'd be looking at are her or is this child still napping for one, because a lot of parents tend to, you know, if sleep isn't happening during the day. Maybe we're giving up on naps for this age group, still two naps being offered. So I'm wondering maybe um, the first nap has been dropped a little bit prematurely and they're just overtired going into that afternoon nap, not getting that restored to sleep, then overtired going to bed. If that's the case, I would be suggesting if it's on one nap to make sure bedtime is super early. And I know a lot of parents are terrified of an early bedtime because they're like, if I put my so child backwards. down, I know it's not logical. So all everybody listening, it's not logical. It's biological. We are not taking anything uh -huh. away from their morning sleep. All we were doing is offering an extra sleep cycle or sleep cycles, depending on early, how much earlier mm. it is at the beginning of the night where the most restorative, there's that word again, restorative sleep happens. So anything before midnight is that's where our most restorative sleep happens. That's our deep sleep. So we want to make sure that we're offering as much as we can at the beginning of the night so we can break that cycle of being overtired. And that's one of the easiest ways and the fastest ways to break that cycle is to offer an early bedtime. Do I suggest early bedtime forever? No, it's not sustainable, but you have to break that cycle somewhere. So let's bring that bedtime back very early, temporarily. It's a win-win. It's a win for the child and it's a win for parents because now you're not going to be spending like three hours of your night <laughs> helping this child go to sleep. And when we offer that earlier bedtime and their bodies are physically ready for sleep and not stretching them, you will see a lot of those bedtime battles disappear and maybe even some sleep associates disappear because they are able to do it on their own. So that's what I would be suggesting. Mm. Um, feeding her, if it's not a nutritional need at this point, and usually if there's not an underlying health issue, feeding at 14 months during the night is usually not a nutritional need. So I move away from that and start to focus mm -hmm. on the cause of that night waking. And I, you know, not having any background information about the child's weight or anything like that. 
Um, that might be something that is just too stimulating for this age now. And it's just prolonging right. that night waking. So I'd move away from that. Okay. So focus on naps, early bedtime, and move away from, um, from, the, from the feeding during the night. And how early would you recommend? Like what's kind of the, mm. what's, what falls within the like early bedtime range? Yes. So for, depending on how that nap went, the, if the nap or the nap didn't happen, um, my earliest suggestion would be, and everybody hold on five thirty. Five thirty. I know. Right. It, oh it blows goodness. your mind. It really does blow your mind. But if the child is so overtired and you see them struggling, like eating for dinner or they're getting their second wind, like being ridiculously hyper or being silly, those are signs of being overtired. Not that they're right. happy. And, and a lot of the times parents are kind of misreading those signs that, oh, well, they're happy. They're just playing and screaming and just jumping around. Ooh, that's actually a sign that they're overtired. And we want to get them in their sleep yeah. place before they're overtired. Um, because that's when the, the two hour bedtime battle can start happening because now right. their body is so filled with cortisol and just, you know, all this adrenaline going through them that now it's biological. You cannot erase that. You got to let that kind of ride out. And that's when you can see the two hour bedtime battles happening. And it's, I went through it. <laughs> so I know, yeah. I know when I look back, I'm like, oh boy, was I off the mark with like naps and like late bedtime. And it's just two and a half years. Right. And, and it's exhausting. So let's not do that. Wow. Don't be afraid of an early bedtime. Don't be afraid. If you take anything away from this podcast, okay. that's it. <laughs> So that that is great. And so we Gemma didn't mention um, what time she does put her daughter yes. to bed. But is that something that you like when she listens that she should be going tonight earlier bedtime? Or does she need to like work backwards 15 yeah. minutes every night until she gets to a she can just start? Depending on um, the child's personality. But for myself, not knowing much of the background, I would just start. And one of the things that she okay. can look for tonight would be what is the mood at dinner time? What is the mood after dinner time? Are they really struggling during that bedtime routine? Is the bedtime routine too long? Another thing that you want to be mindful of is that that bedtime routine is around 30 minutes because now it's cueing them that it's time to sleep. Anything over 30 minutes, you're kind of like, right. oh, you're just doing things, right? It's not really cueing them that it's right. bedtime. So keep that bedtime routine short. But I would start right away and specifically look at, okay, what are they like after dinner time? Oh, wow. Here comes that second win. Okay. Now tomorrow night, we need to move bedtime a little bit earlier. So we don't see okay. that second win. I always have that kind of wind down before that. So I would just start. <laughs> start. Okay. Okay. Gemma, there you go. I hope that that was helpful and I would love to hear how that's going. So yes. hopefully we can talk again soon. Okay. Um, this next question was written in by a mother who is wondering, how important would you say it is that both parents participate in the nighttime wakings and soothings of babies and or toddlers? If there is a default parent that the child seems to be more comfortable with at nighttime or is soothed the quickest by, <laughs> it can be tempting to say that they that that it can be tempting to say that that default parent, quote unquote, should be the one doing the comforting because they can calm them down more easily. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on this? Well, that goes back to our conversation in regards to are both parents on board. So, mm -hmm. you know, it is great to have both parents there and to support each other because it is a team, because sometimes that crying can be a lot. Um, the crying, one thing that I didn't mention and I should have was that <clears throat> when you're doing sleep training, and I think a lot of 
um, people have a very negative connotation of what sleep training is. They don't understand what it is. And it's not just you place your baby in their sleep space and you leave them until the next morning. That is not at all what sleep training is. Um, we definitely take care and we look at every single need. There is never, ever a time when we ignore a need. If there is a feeding, if there's mm-hmm. an emergency, if there's illness. Um, so just kind of want to kind of put that out there because a lot of people are like, oh, I would never sleep train, but they don't really understand what sleep training is. And it's a lot more than just cry it out. Right. I'll say it. (laughs) I'll say it's a a lot more than that because you don't have to use that approach. I've had many families that choose that approach, but it's not for everyone. Um, So, you know, is it important to have both parents for night wakings? Not necessarily, but it can give the other parent a break. Sometimes if um, if there's a fee to sleep association and we're trying to get away from that, it's really great to have, say, dad step in and do those night wakings because then the child learns, hey, I can't do the same thing with mom. I can't breastfeed with dad. So now I got to figure out how to get back to sleep in a different way. Right. And a lot of the times when dad does step in or the other partner steps in, you see those sleep associations break very, very quickly. Um, in regards to, you know, is it all, it is very tempting to have that one parent, you know, always do it because it works faster, but you also have to look at, is that sustainable long-term, you know, I'm all for having, you know, all the caregivers involved, be able to, you know, place that baby down or toddler down for sleep because parents need a break. So if grandma's helping out or grandpa's working out, we certainly want to involve them as well because it's really hard for just one caregiver to do every single bedtime. That's hard. I did it, mm-hmm. right? Because my husband was working late. And if you have more than one child and it's only you, then it becomes even more challenging. So I am all for, you know, inviting the other person to help out. Sometimes it's not feasible just because of work schedules, but my answer would be have that other um, that other person come in and definitely help out if they can. Okay, um, next up, we have a question from a Canadian mama, so I will share that. Hi, my name is Olivia. This question is coming to you from Toronto, Canada. I have a soon-to-be seven-year-old who still wets the bed several times per month. We tried a bedwetting alarm but gave up on it because he wet the bed so inconsistently. At what point should we consult our pediatrician? Or do we just need to ride this out until his body is ready? Thanks so much. Thanks, Olivia, for your question. Um, for this one, I would I would certainly reach out to your pediatrician. Um, one thing that I have come across in, in my 10 years that I've been doing this is that if there's a, you know, kind of years of going on of, of bedwetting, um, there could be an underlying health concern there. One thing that does pop up, I am not a pediatrician. Please don't mistake me for <laughs> giving medical advice. That's not what I'm doing. It's just something that I've seen over the last um, few years, actually very recently with, with one of the clients now, um, is uh, diabetes. And that's one of the things that has come up in, in my practice over the last 10 years. If there is a prolonged um, you know, bed running history there that it could be something. So perhaps there's something in the family history I'd be looking at if there is diabetes. Um, you know, a lot of the times too, that that children do take a little bit longer. I'm not sure the significance of the, of the bed running, like if it's a heavy soaking, 
Um, if it's just a, you know, there could be a urinary tract infection, there, there could be uh, quite a few things. Um, but I would always refer out to a, to a doctor just to see if there's anything underlying. Um, the other thing that came to mind too is that what kind of happens uh, when this bed wedding happens? So is there a lot of engagement that happens? Are they having trouble falling asleep at night? And maybe this is something behavioral that they do in regards to getting mom or dad to come back in the middle of the night and then tucking them back in. There's, there's some other things that, that I would have questions in regards to that um, to just make sure that, you know, this child is falling asleep independently. And, you know, those are kind of the other questions that I have. So digging a little bit deeper, I think is needed for, for Olivia in, in that regard. So, but I would refer out to a pediatrician just to make sure that there's not um, any of the underlying health issues that's going on there. That would be my first step. Okay. Thank you. Okay, the last question I have here, Kim, they have said, Hi, Kim, we've recently transitioned to a toddler bed. And now our child is getting up in the night and comes out of their bedroom countless times in the middle of the night. Is there something we can do to reinforce staying in bed and try to encourage them to go back to sleep? Or is this just a developmental stage that we need to ride out and it will resolve itself? Okay, so this is a huge deal, <laughs> this question. So um, one thing I one thing I, I would like to know is the age of this child. So my recommendation for changing out into a toddler bed, moving that crib is three years. And the reason being is okay. that developmentally, they're not able to understand consequences and circumstances the way they need to with that big responsibility of staying in their bed. Mm. So that's where the breakdown happens. If we start to transition too early you are really skating uphill with that because they don't understand. They start to think it's a game and they're just like, well, if I come out of my room, mom or dad is going to chase me back to my room. So this is fun, right? So if this child is younger than three, I would recommend going back into the crib. Now, depending how okay. long this transitions have happened, if it's recently, I would certainly do that. If, you know, it's been going on for like six months, that might be challenging to go back into a crib at this point. If they're almost three, I would probably work towards establishing some expectations and some boundaries around sleep. Um, but it can be pretty challenging, like I said, if they're younger than three for them to really understand, you know, now I have a responsibility of staying in my bed. Um, if this child is older than three, then you can certainly start um, having that routine and setting those boundaries and expectations around sleep. And they thrive on that. So don't think that, oh, you're being too harsh around, you know, setting those expectations because they look for parents to guide them and they need those boundaries and expectations to know what to do because they're looking for us to, hey, what do I do now? I have this big bed. I have this room that I can wander in the middle of the night. I can actually go out. So now it becomes challenging. If this child is leaving the room, we also have to look at safety. So is there, you mm -hmm. know, are they upstairs? Is there a gate at the stairs that we need to put up now? Because they can certainly wander. I had a family that I worked with many years ago that before they contacted me, their child went downstairs and actually was trying to leave the house in the middle of the night. So this is a big thing, right? And a lot of parents don't think of everything else that can go on once they transfer into a big person bed, right? This It's a big deal. It's a really, really big deal. 
So we have to make sure that there's safety um, things set up. So, you know, everyone is safe during the night because some ones are very quiet and they can go through the house and we don't know. Right. So, but sometimes a gate at their door, not necessarily closing the door, Mm. but a gate at the door can help depending on your parenting style. That may not be something that you choose to do. If that's the case, then you can start to um, follow an approach called a silent return. This can be very challenging, particularly in the middle of the night when I mentioned that our patience Mm. is not the same as it is at noon. So we tend to do those quick fixes that, oh, okay, I'll just come in and I'll just sleep with you again until you fall asleep. But because you do that, every time they wake up on another sleep cycle, they're looking for you again. So they're going to get up again. Mm -hmm. So we really want to be mindful that if you have transitioned to a taller bed, that they're falling asleep independently. So that's the first step to make sure that that's happening because when they do wake up, everybody wakes up during the night, but they have the ability to go back to sleep and they know that it's safe. They know that, you know, we're just transitioning and they can go back to sleep on their own. So if that's not happening, I would focus on that. And if it is happening and they're still waking up, my first question would be, what time is bedtime? Is it too late? And this is the reason Mm. we're looking at the cause, right? We're always looking at that cause of what is triggering that night waking. Could be that they don't fall asleep independently. Could be that they're overtired going to bed. That's my, that would be my first one actually, would be that they're overtired going to bed. And this is what's causing those night wakings and the bedtime battles. Um, If those things are, are okay, then I'd be looking at, okay, what's happening during those night wakings? Is there too much engagement? Engagement, usually there is. Um, so when I say silent return, it really has to be silent. Like there's no engagement whatsoever because even if it's like a, a tuck in or a kiss or one word, they've engaged and you've engaged. And so what's going to keep them coming, you know, getting out of the room again, that engagement, it doesn't matter for them right. if it's positive or negative reinforcement that they're receiving, they receive something. So they're going to continue. And I like to give the analogy of like, if there's a show and there's an audience, it's going to continue. If there's no audience, the show stops. And that's what's happening, okay. right? So you really have to be mindful that it's silent. Will it happen overnight working with a toddler? No. <laughs> will it, mm-hmm. Will that silent return happen 50 million times in one night? Perhaps. Um, because they need to realize that mom or dad or whoever's taking care of them is saying, sharing that same message over and over again. No, it's back into your bed. It's back into your bed. Um, if they're a little bit older, then we have to look at, okay, you know, what else is going on there? Is there some fears that are contributing to these night wakings? We need to talk about that and we need to validate that. Um, so those are some things that, that quickly come to mind. But if it's just a matter of, you know, them getting out of bed, it's that constant bringing back to letting them know that this is their place to sleep over and over and over again until they understand because it's not going to be fun for them anymore. And then engagement will stop. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very, okay. it can be a very long process with the silent return. So again, focus on that cause first, focus on that cause of those night. Okay. Um, Kim, I ask every guest for their must haves for motherhood. And I would like to ask you to share your must haves for a sleepy baby or sleepy toddler or sleepy child. Um, What advice or tips do you have for anyone listening? Do you have go to items for creating a sleep friendly environment? Yes. So one thing you do want to be mindful of, and you can start this day one, as soon as you bring your baby home, or, you know, starting your family together, Um, is to make sure that room is conducive to sleep. So we want to make sure that it's dark enough that you're not able to read a book when your eyes adjust. 
Um, you want to have a sound machine to block out any household noises so you don't have to walk around on eggshells. And you want to make sure, particularly for the young ones, is that they're not overtired going into their sleep place for their naps or for bedtime. That's the biggest one is that a lot of parents will stretch um, those kind of wake times, right, or wake windows out when they're mm -hmm. very, very young because a lot of the advice is, oh, just keep them up and they'll sleep better. No, right. <laughs> it actually doesn't happen that way. It's the reverse. Um, so yeah. trying to, you know, be mindful of those um, sleep cues. So the redness around the eyes, the rubbing of their eyes, um, you know, just being super fussy. But one thing that I love sharing with parents is a book called The Wonder Weeks. And there's an app that you can you can get. Mm -hmm. But the book is my favorite. I have a love-hate relationship with the app because it I feel <laughs> it doesn't provide parents the information that they need and they deserve. It, it falls short a little bit there. Um, and it gives that kind of negative overview of like, oh, your baby's going to be miserable for the next two weeks. But they're not. You need right. to change that mindset because it is an absolutely amazing thing that your baby or your child is going through. There's 10 within the first two years of their life. So these are big things that are happening. And 100%, it will always affect sleep. There's big things that happen. So rolling, sitting, crawling, standing, walking. Those are the big five. Those are big motor ones that happen. But there's also some other things that are going on within the brain. So this book... Um, I would not recommend it if I didn't think it was beneficial for any sleep deprived parent out there whatsoever. It is truly beneficial. I loved it so much um, that I did take their certification in the UK because I found that, you know, once everything else is is, is kind of set in, in for sleep wise and then something changes, we're like, well, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything differently. Mm -hmm. What happened? It's your child's changing. So now we need to navigate through those changes. So the great thing about this book is that it gives you an overview of what's happening at that stage, but it also gives you ideas of toys and activities that you can do with your child that will help them master those new skills faster. And when they master those new skills, sleep comes back on track faster. So this is why it's so important to help nurture them through them instead of saying, oh, my child's going to be just miserable for the next two weeks. Let's just get through it. No, right. don't do that. We want to, you know, because a lot of parents too will come to me and say, well, what can I do? I, I need to do something. This is what you can do. <laughs> you know, play with those toys, do those little activities with them. And that's what, so that's my, my two things. So sleep environment, make sure that um, sleep, their sleep space is conducive to sleep. Um, grabbing the book, The Wonder Week, so to kind of give you a, a better overview um, and to just make sure that their sleep space is safe. That's the biggest thing for me. Okay. I'm a big safety, crazy person. <laughs> so we always need to make sure that wherever they're sleeping is that it's safe, 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 safe. Great. Kim, thank you so much for the conversation today. Like I said, I've been acting like a sponge and I know that a lot of moms are probably taking notes, either mental notes, literal notes as they're listening. Um, can you tell everybody who is listening where they can go to find you online? And you've already given some fantastic resources, which I will link in the show notes. But uh, do you have much of an online presence? Yes, absolutely. So the easiest way to reach out to me is through my website. Um, I have my history there, gives you a little brief overview of kind of what I went through, my background, um, the programs that I offer, but that's probably the best way to reach out. So it'd be babesandbeyond.com that you can reach out to. I do um, post on social media within Facebook and Instagram, uh, but the easiest way to get a hold of me would definitely be through my website. 
Okay, perfect. I will make sure, as I said, that I link all of that in the show notes for this episode. So mamas, go check that out if you are interested in hearing more from Kim. Again, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure and hopefully a conversation that will help bring a few mothers listening a couple extra hours of sleep tonight or going forward. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. Hey, mamas. I've been doing a lot of thinking since my interview with Kim, and I am really reflecting on what she had to say about us as parents needing to have a mindset shift, and that calling it a regression, a sleep regression, gives it this negative connotation right from the start. What it really is is our children progressing, our children growing and learning. That doesn't make it easy. Far from it. And I think we also need to apply that mindset shift ourselves. For example, when our children are going through changes in their sleep and changes in their their amount of sleep and therefore changes in your amount of sleep as a parent, it can be so, so easy to fall into this question of what am I doing wrong? I must be doing something wrong. To feel guilty about not being able to help them sleep, feeling guilty about how frustrating it can be, how impatient it can make you And then in turn, possibly impatient with your child, which continues the cycle of guilt. Anyways, reframing our mindset. That's what I'm going to take from that conversation and really focus on that. And it's not a quick fix. I can attest to that by the fact that I was up from four to six this morning with my toddler and lost the battle before having a little mini breakdown and handing him off to my husband. So I hope you are all sleeping. If not, I hope you are all sleeping soon. And I hope you enjoyed the interview. We're all in this together. Do, do, do. Yeah, seriously, guys, all babies and children go through these stages and changes and growth. And we just need to pool our resources more as moms and help each other through the more difficult times. And while we're on the subject of helping each other out, Maybe try and find yourself a close mom friend or two that you can trade off kiddos with every once in a while and go catch up on some sleep. If you found today's episode helpful, entertaining, or relatable in any way, please go hit subscribe in your listening app of choice and leave me a review. Or better yet, just share today's episode with somebody that you know. Okay, mamas, I hope you're having a great day or night wherever and whenever you're listening to this. And I can't wait to hang out in your ears again soon. Until next time. Hey, Mama. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the Raise Your Hand Motherhood podcast. I made it for you, so I hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so we can hang out together again soon.